Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Unscrewed, the show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I am your host, Jacqueline Friedman, and I am so excited this week to welcome to the show someone whose writing I have admired for so long. You may know Rebecca Traster as a columnist for New York Magazine, or you may know her for her first book, Big Girls Don't Cry, which is an amazing look at gender politics in the 08 election. Very relevant right now. But probably you know her because her latest book, called All the Single Ladies, is now a certified New York Times bestseller, which means a lot of you already know how great it is. It's a deep dive into the meaning and material realities of single women in America and into this moment in which the rising normalcy of adult single women in no hurry to get married is revolutionizing the way we think of women as adults and as humans. And I'm so thrilled to introduce you to the brilliant human woman who made it happen. Welcome to the show, Rebecca Traster. I'm so happy to be here. Ah, yay! So you basically wrote an entire history of single women in the United States. No big deal. (laughs) Yeah, no big deal. Easy peasy. Easy peasy. Well, we're going to talk about all of that during the show, but it is traditional here on Unscrewed to get to know you a little by putting you through a little lightning round. You ready? Yes, go. What has made you the happiest this week? Oh, God, my answer is so cheesy. Be cheesy. We welcome cheese on this show. Well, I've been traveling a lot for my book and my book tour. And I've been, because I'm also a journalist covering the campaign, you know, I've been out and I've been working late and I've been working mornings. And so when I came back from my Canadian book tour last night and I woke up this morning, my daughter said, I'm just so glad mom's home. That was, that made me very happy. That's very cheesy. Oh my God. I can't believe I said that. It's like, if it makes you feel better on the last show, Deanna's aunt said that the thing that made her happy was seeing her boyfriend. So Okay. Well, this is this was honestly the honest answer is that I was so happy when when she said, "I'm so glad mom's home." That's lovely. You may, you need to make no apologies for it. What's the best sex advice you ever received? The best sex advice. God, I didn't get much sex advice. <laughs> oh, wait. Well, here's a piece of advice. So, I don't even know who gave me this piece of advice. This is like actual mechanics. But when I was young, I was told that if you feel like you have to pee before you have sex, don't. 
because actually having a slightly full bladder enhances the experience. And I have uh, adhered to this. That's way too much information. No, that's amazing. Because sometimes when you get turned on, it's also like a similar feeling. Yeah. Like a, a kind of feeling of fullness, right? Yeah. If you really have to pee, pee before sex, right? right? It's just like for just that, you know, it's almost like, and it sometimes happens where you think, uh-oh, I better, you know, but it almost you sort of pee in advance. Somebody told me when I was young, don't do that. That's great advice. I'm going to have to try that out now. That might be the best sex advice I've ever received. Who knows? Well, you'll see, you'll see how it works out for you. I mean, I actually have never really experimented a lot with the alternative. So we're going to have to do an unscrewed controlled study, listeners. So everyone try this and report back. What's the sexuality related news that's made you the maddest or saddest recently? Well, you know, I think I've been reading a lot of stuff around Peggy Ornstein's book, Girls and Sex. And I think the thing in it that really struck me the most was the number of, and, and actually I got to this, I was reporting a story, this was in the fall, I reported a story on campus sex for New York Magazine. Yes, I loved it. This was something that's in Peggy's book, but it was also something that I found really in staggering numbers when I was doing interviews for that story about young women and sex, which is how many women are not having orgasms. Real talk. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I didn't either for a long time, although I actually had a really, I, I didn't have like a great sex life as a young person at all. So it's not that I'm, I don't shock myself when I say I didn't have orgasms as a young person, but, but I am shocked. I think it's so easy to assume that everybody else is having them. As it turns out, many women are not. Right, because we don't ra- we're not raised to expect like that sex is for us or about us. Right, and we're not taught how to how to make them work, and and our partners aren't taught how mm-hmm. to happen. So yes, I also uh, didn't have an orgasm for a long time, and I was super sexually active, and I was having a great time, but I literally just didn't know. I didn't know how to have one. I didn't know how to talk about it. Yes. Uh, what's the biggest sex myth that you once believed but you don't anymore? That everybody else was having orgasms. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. All right. Lastly, who is the bravest person or one of the bravest people you can think of who's working to unscrew the sexual culture? Well, I think the people who are doing real yeoman's work in terms of unscrewing sexual culture are the high school and college sex educators who are using sort of innovative techniques. There was a Times Magazine story about them by by Lori Abraham a few years ago. And then there's one who Peggy Orenstein writes about in her book. I think that there are sex educators around the country who are doing the really important work of talking to kids and trying to educate them better about their bodies and sexuality and relationships and reciprocity and sexual equality. Yes, and doing that in high school settings where usually it's a battle just to get it taught, I think does take an enormous amount of bravery and tenacity. Absolutely. Right. Awesome. So... On our last show, we talked a lot about sexual harassment because of the Anita Hill movie, which is still forthcoming when you and I are talking, but will have aired when this airs. And you wrote really smart stuff that I had not thought about in the book about Anita Hill. So I thought maybe we'd start by talking about Anita Hill and what she can tell us about single women in America. Well, the fascinating thing is the Anita Hill hearings were really formative for me. I was what, 17, 18 years old. And it was just as I was sort of coming to consciousness about 
feminism, which I was sort of thinking about in academic settings in high school, but hadn't was just beginning to apply to life. And there were these hearings, and I was glued to them. Though I was in the home of my conservative grandparents for the, the weekend that they were happening, and they were so sure she was lying, and I had this gut feeling that she wasn't. It was just, it really made an impact on me. But I thought of Anita Hill in terms of gender, in terms of issues of sexual harassment, in terms of race. But when I started writing this book and I started thinking about the unmarried women who made an impact on me, it really occurred to me in my 30s as I was starting this book, wait a minute, she was an unmarried woman. I hadn't really considered it from that angle. I hadn't either, which is what was such a revelation in your book was like, oh, well, of course that was part of what was going on. Right. And so here's the amazing thing. I knew I was going to write about her. I was going back. I was watching. It's, this was one of the earliest parts of the book that I started working on. I got an invitation to be a guest, as I sometimes was, on Melissa Harris Perry's wonderful weekend Ugh. on MSNBC. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. We love you. Yes. Well, this is how. This is one of the reasons that show is so important because it brought to television lots of people who don't often find their way to television. So I got an invitation one weekend, and and I went. And Anita Hill was a fellow guest, and I was so thrilled to meet her and get to talk to her. She was talking about housing policy, and I knew I wanted to interview her for the book, but I was afraid that she was going to be taken aback by my angle, that she was going to not want to talk about her single life. And so I went to her very tentatively, and I said, you know, this might sound nuts, but I'm writing this book about unmarried women, and I wanted to talk to you about how your single status played into your perceptions of what happened during the hearings. And she didn't miss a beat. And she was like, oh, yeah, I wrote an essay about that. And I had never seen it. But she had published, she had edited a collection of essays. And she'd written one of them about how her single status in combination with her race and her gender had played a huge role in how both the Senate Judiciary Committee and the media and the public understood her and her power. And so in addition to granting me an interview, which was very generous, she also sent me that essay, which turned out, and I, I quote from it in the book quite extensively, because she had done all this thinking that I was like, oh, she was single. Well, Anita Hill had also written about how she was single. You know, one of the things that, that she says in that essay is she was incomprehensible to a lot of people because she was unattached to an institution that made women comprehensible, which is, of course, one of the things that marriage does. It organizes gender power, or, and it has historically anyway, organizes gender power, gives women uh, identity and worth that is digestible. But here was this woman who was independent of this institution, and not only that, she was kind of, she was a professional peer. She had an equivalent education too, and had worked alongside, and in and was in a position to testify against a man who was being nominated to the Supreme Court of the United States. And because the conversation was about sexual harassment, and because she was unattached to marriage, people could impose all kinds of dangerous sexuality on her. So, and because she was black, of course. Yes, exactly. So, and that's, that's part of what she writes about. So she becomes this kind of unstable element. She's not attached to a man. That Therefore, you can guess that she must have been motivated out of a desire to be attached to a man, which, of course, was a lot of the argument about her. She was just feeling jilted. She was lonely in this town, as one of the witnesses testified. Um, she suffered from erotomania. There were all kinds of sort of pathologies that you could attach to her because she couldn't be comfortably understood as a wife. I cite this line and use it as a chapter heading in my chapter about politics and single women 
you know, as one of the members of the House Judiciary said, I think it was Alan Simpson said, watch out for that woman. Mm-hmm. The unmarried woman is a dangerous woman. Um, that's also something that I, I write in my book about some of the language around unmarried female sexuality in the 1940s. This is stuff that, that the writer Elaine Tyler May has done great work on, about how if you think about the language around bombshell and knockout, there was a way that all kinds of like explosive, dangerous, pugilistic language was attached to the idea of unattached female sexuality. I thought it was so interesting. One of the things you talked about a few decades before that, sort of when women were gaining independence in in the cities, I think it was around the time of the rise of the flappers, was also around the time of the invention of sort of dating and courting. And that it kind of separates out a little bit the idea of sex. Like it was okay to encourage women to fool around with men and date them as long as maybe it was leading to marriage. Like it was more threatening for them to be independent and not need marriage than it was to even think about them being sexually active. Here's the thing. Sexually active women outside of marriage are dangerous because of reproduction. The possibility of reproduction outside of marriage until very recently was something that was dangerous to men because if you're, you know, how do you pass on privilege? How do you organize a family structure? How do you maintain power within a patriarchal family structure? Women's sexuality outside of male control is obviously, has long been explosively dangerous. However, if a little bit of sexual Congress leading up to this institution that did so much work as far as, you know, codifying gender power, marriage, is a, lead, a little sexuality leading up to marriage isn't such a bad thing. There are lots of historians who've written about how many, many couples, it was in other eras, Stephanie Kuntz has written about this, it was quite common for men and women to have sex before they married. Pregnant brides have always been a thing. Um, and even with in some in some times, and not really in colonial United States where, you know, there was really, there were puritanical values around sexuality, but that there have been other periods in which it was even sort of okay with parents and with com- within communities for men and women who were presumed to be about to get married to be sharing a bed. But certainly women's sexuality unbound from the expectation of marriage, it has been threatening. Right, exactly. Like, okay, we'll give you a little heavy petting if it means you're like moving toward marriage, right? right. Like, um, but but you all by yourself, like looking after your own interests is way too threatening to the cultural stability. Uh, right, exactly. It puts me in mind, you also write a lot about sex in the city and you actually gave me this aha moment. As you know, I think a lot about sort of the signifiers of sexual power versus like actual sexual power. And, and that's what the book I'm working on is about. And sec- you know, so of course I think about sex in the city and sort of, you know, the whole female chauvinist pigs argument and all of that stuff. And I had this aha moment when I was reading you on Sex in the City, which is like, what was actually revolutionary about Sex in the City to the extent that it was revolutionary, maybe that's hyperbole, is showing women making choices for their own pleasure, right, on their own behalf. But what was taken away from Sex in the City were the signifiers, right? Were the shoes uh, and and the shopping and the sort of, oh, the experimental sex positions and all of that. Like the, the idea of agency, which was actually what felt sort of fresh and envelope pushing about that show. Agency and appetite. And appetite, right? The idea of that, that you can speak for your own appetite is not actually what has wound up being the legacy of that. What's been, wound up being the legacy of that is sort of 
just the empty signifiers of that. I think that's right. But one of the problems with the with Sex and the City's legacy, I think, is that it's natural celebrators, people who are who want to celebrate it for reasons other than that it was fun and funny and like taught everybody about Magnolia cupcakes or whatever. Um, <laughs> That, that the people who would naturally regard it as a groundbreaking show in terms of the move toward something closer to equality for women are feminist fans. And feminist fans are rightfully and reasonably also excruciatingly aware of the fact that it was a, st- a story about an incredibly elite set of women. And they are also aware of the fact that it took some of these messages about liberation and confuse them with messages about consumerism and consumption. And that's one of the reasons that I think it has such a fraught legacy. Well, and also it it also got confused about its own legacy with those movies, I think. Yeah, well, but even before the movies, I mean, when I was doing the book tour, I was doing an interview and somebody was asking me about how all the old shows, it used to be that all the stories ended with marriage. And, you know, thank God that doesn't happen anymore. And, and and I was like, well, it does sometimes. I mean, that is the great critique of the end of Sex and the City is that it ended with Carrie's marriage to the guy who actually had treated her like shit. Like shit. Yeah. The idea that you were going to wind up with this guy who was so clearly bad for you uh. was the real problematic issue. And, you know, and it's also not true that things always ended that way. I mean... I don't think Dirty Dancing could get made today. Right. Or, or Thelma and Louise, for that matter, which is a much darker take on the subject. I think there was like a five minute period in which Thelma and Louise could get made and it was made during that period and that's it. Hallelujah. I actually think it's interesting because Thelma and Louise was made and Dirty Dancing to some extent was made during this incredible period of feminist backlash. And in some ways, I think that permitted them to be made under the radar. That was a period, the 90s, when there was just such a freezer chill on feminism. And a couple of these movies could be made. And because there wasn't a sort of feminist ethos operating in Hollywood, it's like these quirky things could be produced. And people kind of didn't even see them. And they didn't see them until they arrived and then they were on the cover of Time or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think that gets to one of the strongest threads in All the Single Ladies, which is talking about how folks who are marginalized by society, specifically you talk a lot about black women, often are quote unquote liberated or paving the way first, but no one's paying attention. And they're able to pave the way in some ways because they don't have cultural status. And I thought, well, there's less in uh, more marginalized populations, there's less power and status to protect. Right. And you point out rightly, you know, living single happened a long time before sex in the city. And we didn't talk about it in the same way. Those sorts of things. And it tracks with, you know, one of my friends is uh, Heather Corinna, who runs the great sexuality resource website scarletteen.com and she told me that in terms of sex ed and in terms of the kind of girls for example that Peggy Ornstein uh, profiles in girls and sex that often girls of color or the more marginalized young people that she works with actually have stronger access to sex ed and to their own pleasure and appetites for that same reason interesting Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That there's more alienation and there's more isolation and shame around sex among the girls who are most prized, which of course is the sort of better off white girls. That's fascinating. I hadn't thought of it with regard to sex ed, but that's very interesting. Right, because because people aren't hoping for their purity. It's also interesting because when you started talking about this, you framed it as and and this is this corresponds to what I wrote, the notion that even as um, marginalized, less affluent women and women of color pioneer a lot of these, a, a lot of new behaviors. They do so in response to economic necessity. And as, as you said, people aren't paying attention to them as sort of pioneers of behavior that's liberating. But they are paying attention to them often as victims or malevolent forces. So when black women began to marry less often, black women and men, it was the mid-20th century. After emancipation, black marriage rates had been much higher than white marriage rates. In the middle of the 20th century, in the same years that white middle-class women were being sort of pushed back into early hetero-married suburban models, this the sort of mid-50s, leave it to beaver, Norman Rockwell era of American history, that was built in and in large part funded by the government. Basically, the resources that were creating the ability of this white middle class to sort of re-entomb middle class white women in a patriarchal family structure were simultaneously cutting off black families from the kinds of resources that made traditional hetero early married, you know, nu nuclear family models possible. And what you get two years after the feminine mystique, which is the Betty Friedan 1963 sort of explosive breakout of those white middle class suburbs, two years later you get the Moynihan Report, which diagnoses single black women as the sort of pathological center of systemic black poverty. And so there they are, they're being paid attention to, but as both victims and the problem. And then you see them further vilified through uh, the Reagan years and the, the welfare queen, which of course gets pushed through welfare reform in the 1990s. And then as the behavior of not marrying, pioneered by many of those women of color in the mid-20th century, begins to be mimicked by increasingly affluent women. Eventually we get to the point where it's sex in the city, ladies, and, you know, with $600 shoes, and suddenly it's discernible as liberation. Right. It puts me in mind of your really great section on marriage promotion, one of the bees in my bonnet very often is marriage promotion, you know, which is for those who are less familiar, the idea that the, the government somehow thinks that the best way to improve outcomes for poor and or women of color is to force them to get married or encourage what they would suggest, uh, which, you know, erases 
the fact that it's really only a benefit if you have a good marriage and certainly not an abusive one or somebody who's in an economic dependent. And I'm sure you can get into all of that. And in fact, what actually increases outcomes both for encouraging marriage and encouraging satisfaction in life is addressing poverty. Right. And yet we see so little of that. Right. And yet the government still seems so attached to the idea that marriage is the cure. And I wonder if you'll put on a little tinfoil hat with me mm-hmm. and tell me whether you think that's on purpose. Like, are they dumb or is it an actual conspiracy? No, I think there's a, <laughs> I think there's a mixture of things, right? So it's not that like there's some evil dude circling the earth on a plane being like, we will make them all get married and then we will oppress them as a class once more. We, we can't disprove that theory, to right. be fair. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that there are some people in conservative circles who do understand that that's part of it, right? And so I think there is really serious, malevolent strategy at work. I also think that there's something that is less consciously malevolent about it, or or that's only halfway to the malevolence, right? It's like, well, things used to work in a certain way, and I, I have a lot of nostalgia for that way. Things used to be ordered. We used to know who did what and when, and families were families, like I recognize the term family. And it seems like everybody was happy that way. But first of all, a lot of this is not exclusive to white men, but a lot of the people that you hear pushing marriage promotion are white guys, right? Mm-hmm. And you know what? It was good for them, <laughs> okay? Like, this is not a false nostalgia. For middle-class white men, the mid-20th century early hetero marriage model worked out great. So you can think warmly of it without necessarily thinking, that's when I had my exclusive white male grip on power. You can think of it as like, I remember mom made me apple pies in the afternoon or whatever the version of it was. And wasn't mom happier being free to make me apple pies? Right. And of course, of course, that was a period in which things for large groups of people, including certainly people of color in the United States and women were really bad. You know, the health of the middle class and the time when sort of America took a selfie of itself and decided it looked great was really a time in which vast portions of the population were very badly marginalized in terms of their political, public, professional, economic, sexual power. But we remember it as America's most robust time. Mm. Think about Trump supporters when they say make America great again. Mm. Some of them are Nazis who go and say (laughs) Sig Hale and are unapologetic about punching black people and calling women horrible names. But then there's another population of people who maybe are thinking, let's make America great again in the way that I heard it was. You know, this vast chasm between wealthy and poor in the United States leaves lots of people scared without jobs, without any kind of safety net. So a lot of those people are operating out of real fear and moving towards something that we've been told was the best time in this country. Right. So I wonder if you will do a little state of the single girl in in 2016, right? Uh, What do we have going for us, uh, single ladies? And and what are single ladies still struggling with? So unmarried women today are not a self-consciously politicized population. For the most part, women are not marrying later or not marrying because they're saying, I reject marriage as a patriarchal institution. I want to live a liberated life. I'm making a feminist statement. There are some women who do that. But what we're talking about is a mass behavioral shift that is not about political ideology. And 
they're doing it in response to conditions that have never been better, that have that that permit female independence. So the ability to control our reproduction through access to birth control and access to improved methods of contraception, the increased educational opportunity and opportunities to compete on playing fields that were previously closed to women, the kind of Title IX victories. Mm-hmm. The ability of women to go to colleges and graduate schools, to compete professionally, to earn comparable wages, the culturally shifting attitudes about sex outside of marriage and also about having children outside of marriage so that it increasingly becomes a norm to have children outside of marriage. All these things are things that American women have going for them right now in a way that we have not previously. However, if you listen to all the things I just listed, you can also immediately here all the ways in which they're challenged. Of course, there are portions of this country in which abortion is no longer accessible and for all intents and purposes is illegal. Again, Republicans are working very hard to make birth control inaccessible and especially inaccessible across, uh, you know, all of this is especially intense for people who don't have the means at the economic power to go around federal and state and local restrictions to to get their birth control or abortions if they need them. If you actually think we live in a world in which the ability of women to be in the workforce and experience equality there is in any way supported by the government, how can you possibly imagine that if we do not federally mandate that anybody get paid for a minute away from the office when they have the children that the government would also like to force them to have by taking away their rights to control their reproduction through birth control and abortion. If you successfully roll back the victories of the second half of the 20th century and its political and and social battles, if you, which is happening, this is what, this is what is in front of us, right? If you take away voting rights, which the Supreme Court made easier through its gutting of the Voting Rights Act uh, last year. If you take away abortion rights, which as we know, people are trying to do around the country. If you fail to provide paid leave, now this is a battle that is very much happening all around us, but if you fail to do that nationally, if you fail to guarantee equal pay for women, and if you fail to address the wage gap, if you fail to raise the minimum wage, two-thirds of minimum wage workers are women. Half of them are single women, many of them mothers, and 42% of single mothers live below the poverty line. Those single mothers are having babies and not being able to get paid for a day after they have a baby Mm -hmm. and their jobs are imperiled. We don't have, and then who's picking up those babies? We don't have any subsidized childcare. But we also don't want them to use birth control. Right. No, no, no. This is all of these policy things. They're not accidental. If you if you fail to do all this stuff, if you fail to provide supports, and if you take back the progress that women have made, if you take away all that stuff or fail to provide support, you will push women back into marriage. You will recreate circumstances in which women must be dependent on men. So this is not some fixed thing like, oh, now we're going to live longer unmarried and not have to begin our adulthoods by getting hitched to whoever we just rubbed up against at the school dance because we could be pushed back into that with a few key pieces of legislation. So do you think we're in the middle of a, of a backlash? We are on the verge of a feminist freezer. I, I mean, I keep 
thinking about this, and it's going to be especially bad if Hillary Clinton is elected president. If she's not, we probably can forestall it for another few years. Well, except that fucking Ted Cruz or Donald Trump will be president. Right. These, so yes, we're in a constant state of forward motion and backlash. And I think that the past... There have been a lot of victories in the past 10 years, especially on some of these policy fronts at state and local levels. These are real leftist, real feminist victories on paid sick days, on paid leave, on higher minimum wage. Those things are where progress is really being made. And on campus sexual assault. And on campus sexual assault, right? So we've been in a period where there's constantly forward motion and, and resistance to that forward motion. But I think we've come off of a deck we're coming off of a decade where there's been where the forward motion has been sort of the bigger story i mean it's been happening coterminously with the serious restriction of abortion rights so maybe it's been pretty equal push and pull but yes if ted cruz and a republican congress come in we're going to be like on a major legislative backlash like massive steps backwards if Hillary Clinton becomes president, we probably won't see those steps backwards legislatively. I certainly hope we won't. But we will see a cultural antagonism toward women and their progress. And The same way we saw a huge racist backlash in the culture when Obama was elected. And they'll be linked. This is one of the things that Donald Trump's candidacy makes so clear. We're not going to stop with the racism just because Barack Obama is out of office. (laughs) He and Hillary Clinton, if she wins, are going to be paired as these two side by side, these two twin symbols of disruptive people and populations. And the racism and the sexism already going hand in hand at the Donald Trump rallies is going to, that, that's going to continue. We are going to be living in the post-Obama-Hillary hellscape for some time. So I think we need to prepare for that. So how do we prepare for that? Uh, you know, stock up on beer. <laughs> And birth control. Stock up on birth control. Yeah, stock up on beer and birth control. Um, And like uh, the abortion pill. (laughs) Right, right. No, well, that's not a joke, actually. I think you want to give money to your local abortion funds. You want to, you know, I think I, I know people who are training to become providers. There's a lot of activism that's still happening. But yeah, perhaps also, and this is not a knock in any way against younger activists, But I think that the fear can be more palpable for those of us who grew up during the last backlash period. Mm -hmm. Like, we know how chilly it can get out there. And I think that it probably is up to us to, like, try to to ring the alarm and be like, hey, everybody, there are going to be some major forces operating that I think those of us who have some memory of the last period of backlash need to start talking about a little bit more openly and getting people girded for it, you know? Yes. I kind of want to not leave on such a ominous note. So I, I know. Can we go back to the beer? Beer. Beer. But actually, I want to go back to one of the parts I found most delightful about the book, which is your writing about female friendships mm-hmm. and how fem- how we can be each other's primary people. I mean, obviously, you know, I know Anne and Amina, who are one of the main couples that you talk yeah. about, sort of friend couples. But I think that's also a way for us to prepare for the coming freeze is to really strengthen our relationships with each other and realize that our relationships with each other as women are just as re- as legitimate, can be just as legitimate or more legitimate than any het marriage we might have. Oh, absolutely. And that, I think, is one of the messages of the book that people have been coming away with most strongly is the acknowledgement, it's, it's acknowledgement of, and the acknowledgement by many of the women who I interviewed 
um, of the role that women play for each other throughout adulthood, in different stages of adulthood, as each other's families, as de facto spouses, as partners, as intimates, as ballast, as and that those friendships are as good and in many cases better than the traditionally hetero partnerships that women were sort of nudged into at the beginning of their adulthoods for generations that preceded this. Yeah, I think that's an absolutely, you're right. It's an absolutely crucial part of girding ourselves for whatever's to come. Yeah. Ladies, love on the other ladies in your life in whatever ways you want to. We should all be, you know, strengthening our friendships with each other because you know they're going to play divide and conquer with us. Right, exactly. Hold your girlfriends tight. Hold your girlfriends tight, yes. Drink your beer and take your birth control. And And stock up on abortion pills. Thank you so much for coming. Where can people find you and your work? Well, you can find me. I'm on staff at New York Magazine, where I write a weekly column, often about women in politics, but about feminism in its many forms. Total must read. You can buy my book, All the Single Ladies, uh, Unmarried Women and the Rise of an Independent Nation at uh, independent bookstores nationwide, as well as at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Um, And yeah, that's it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. I love the book so much. And you can find me at JacquelineFriedman.com. That's J-A-C-L-Y-N-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N.com. You can find my writing, past episodes of the podcast, all that good stuff. You can also find me on Twitter and Facebook at JacquelineF. Use the hashtag unscrewed and join in the conversation. I always love hearing what people are thinking about this episode or any of the other episodes or the sexual cultural in general. Hit me up at hashtag unscrewed. Or email me, unscrewed at JacquelineFriedman.com. Tell me if you have a sex or sexuality advice question you want answered by me and a future guest. If you have ideas for future guests or future topics, what you think of the show. I just always love hearing from listeners. You can find this show wherever podcasts are available. iTunes, Acast, Stitcher. If you like the show, if you want to help other people find it, Go to iTunes, give us some five stars, give us some nice reviews. That is how iTunes decides to promote us. This show is produced in collaboration with Katie Tandy, the creative director at theestablishment.co and edited by myself, Jacqueline Friedman. The cover art is by Nicole Dodonna and the in and out music you're listening to right now is by The Pink Tiles. Until next time, I'm wishing you safe and happy sex lives. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.